In November of 1859, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published. His central theory of evolution would challenge people's faith in God as creator and ultimately change many people's worldview. His theory totally revolutionized what children are taught in public schools. It has been embraced as science, though it is simply a faith alternative, meaning it is a new object of faith. Fifteen years before his book was published, when Darwin first considered what was later termed natural selection, he wrote to a friend, a botanist friend named Joseph D. Hooker, and in that letter, after making mention of what we know now as natural selection, he said that his world-changing theory about to be published is like confessing a murder. When a person removes God from their life and leads others to do the same, there will follow a dreadful emptiness, a kind of death to the life that remains, a tormented or a seared conscience as a person detaches himself from God as Creator, Sustainer, and Savior. There is one book in particular within our 66 books of the Bible that is often overlooked and misunderstood, but in a unique way provides help in finding meaning to life. Even though at times it sounds like he's saying the opposite. Even as chapter 1 was read, all is vanity. There's this five-fold repeated Hebrew word. All is vanity. But Ecclesiastes is actually a beautiful wisdom book that helps you navigate from a life of meaninglessness to a life that actually has great joy and purpose. And so we, Lord willing, are going to take the next four weeks and we're going to go through each, as I've divided it up, four sections in this somewhat unknown book called Ecclesiastes. So please open your scriptures to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And as you're opening there, I want to give this exhortation that we need to do more than understand what Ecclesiastes means and says. We need to deeply obey what it teaches by adjusting our mindset and choices to its truths. Right? This is our attempt as a church to not simply be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So the first sermon I've entitled Enjoy life as a gift from God. Enjoy life as a gift from God, because that is what the first section that runs from chapters 1 to chapters 2 is teaching. Here's, here's where we're going to go in, in our, our time together. First, we want to understand the author's intention. We're not going to get sidelined by debates on who the author is. Okay, It seems like it's Solomon, but there are arguments that would bring us to two other people as well. Second, we will identify three intertwined themes throughout the entire book. And third, we will explore the first section. So let's look at the author's intention. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The author identifies himself, the words of the preacher. Some of your translations may have teacher. Or you may actually have the Hebrew word koalet, which means someone who gathers together. Which is interesting because... Uh, the title Ecclesiastes in the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word ekklesia for church. So this is a gathering together 
And Kohelet, the preacher or the teacher, is gathering people together to teach them. That's the purpose. He identifies himself as, in verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, as we seek to understand the author's intention, look at verse 2, because here's, here's how he opens up. It is a five-fold or a, 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 a word repeated five times. This is what the ESV, KJV, New King James, and New American Standard Bibles say. It's traditionally rendered this way. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you stop there, you're going to miss the meaning of the book. And you're actually going to launch off and sort of sell your soul to fatalism or some other kind of ism that will bring nothing but hopelessness. The New Living Translation and the NIV translators rendered it, everything is meaninglessness. The translators of the Holman Standard Christian Bible render it, absolute futility, everything is futile. But part of the Hebrew word that people are translating, emptiness or futility or meaninglessness, means vapor or mist or smoke. It's something that is temporary. It's something that is changing. It's something that is transitory. Now, in order to find the intention, I want you to turn to the last chapter, chapter 12. So in this sense, we're going to begin with the end because the author is going to pose a question in verse 3 and he is in no hurry to answer it. He's going to let you explore everything under the sun along with him. And then he's going to slowly provide that answer a few chapters later. Look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. He returns to this idea. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Okay, so that's a spiked stick used to prod cattle a certain direction. Okay, the words of the wise are like those. It's it's pushing you down a certain path. And like nails firmly fixed, nails hold things together. Are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Students do not get sidetracked on, the, on, on study is a weariness to the flesh. Right? Look at the end of the matter. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The conclusion of this book is not that of a hollow skeptic, but rather from a wise person who is directing you in how to enjoy this life under the sun. And almost everything you've experienced is under the sun. 
Derek Kidner states, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment, all is vanity, is the only honest one. So it is, if everything is dying, we face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters under the sun. It is then that we can hear, as the good news which it is, that everything matters. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Isn't that some of our frustration in this world? Isn't that some of what leads us to the sort of the motto of the book of Ecclesiastes, that it seems like people are doing evil and getting away with it? That's meaninglessness. That's hopelessness. When the conclusion is this, no, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we're going to see this also in the three intertwined themes of the book. First, there is a thematic phrase that identifies the problem. And the problem is that everything in life under the sun is transitory. It's vanity. That is the repeated and constant drumbeat of the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you will wake up tomorrow morning and it'll be another Monday that was just like last Monday. And all of a sudden, the year 2019 is starting to feel a lot like 2018 and 2016 and 2010. It's all vanity. It's meaninglessness. And I work so hard to get ahead just by a little bit. And I've got to pay for repairs on a vehicle. And that money just goes away. And it's all, so why are we even in pursuit of these things? That is the constant drumbeat of Ecclesiastes and one of its gifts to God's people as well. Because it's okay to look at everything under the sun and say, what? This is utter meaninglessness. Second, there is a theme of hope. So this, this theme that identifies the problem leads us into hope and affirmation. And that is this, that God's gift to you, God's gift to humanity, is to find a measure of joy. God has actually created within you a capacity to find enjoyment in things under the sun. But it has to be found down a specific path. The gift cannot be separated from the giver. And third, there is a theme of accountability, which we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, which helps us navigate that successful path towards, oh, all is vanity, but there is hope and there's affirmation and that we can find great delight in this world, but only as we do not make a false dichotomy between the gifts and the giver as God. So here's, here's how these three themes intertwine. Apart from obedience to God, the temporal enjoyment in possessions fades. Have you ever experienced that? You plan an incredible vacation for the family, and in your mind it is perfect. You even have dreamed of perfect weather, being upgraded to business class, all, you know, all these things in your mind. And... But it's a road trip in the car, so you're not flying. And within the first hour, the kids are complaining. And all of a sudden, you're like, why do we even plan to go away? This is just vanity. No, but there's a measure that God has created within you to be able to enjoy even that under the sun as you don't abandon your relationship with him. Walt Kaiser Jr. wrote this. 
mortals must get accustomed to realizing that if one is to receive satisfaction from one's food and drink, that satisfaction, like all joyous gifts, will have to come from the hand of God. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, seek first what? The kingdom of God. But what had he already been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Food, clothing. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, these other things. So when we go astray and we seek things and possession and achievement and wealth first, we do so to our own harm. And how can we know that we are actually seeking things first rather than God? Jesus continues in the next verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. You know, when things become your God, you will be an anxious, fretful, fearful person. And Ecclesiastes is trying to sort of not crash your party, but Ecclesiastes comes in and, and says, no, that's because everything under the sun is vanity without the one above the sun. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hebrew scholar uh, Franz Dalich comments, quote, in enjoyment, man is not free. In enjoyment, man is not free. It depends not on his own will. Enjoyment is a gift that God imparts, not just the gift of a possession or a relationship or an achievement, but the actual gift to enjoy it. We're going to we're going to revisit the man that we opened up this sermon with in just a little bit. Um, let me explain that a little bit. I love wildlife, especially with photography and in the African bush. I can sit there in a truck and watch a pride of lions for hours. I love pulling the truck up next to the river and watching the crocodiles, especially during the wildebeest migration when they're trying to make their cross and you're taking, you're watching these picnic and taking these pictures of this incredible action of them following this route from Tanzania up through Kenya. But that joy is only possible as it finds its sort of foundation in God as a creator. Because even as we're out there, the same thing is true when we take our children to the aquarium and they, they, they're observing the, the sand tiger sharks or they're looking at the fire coral or these amazing creatures right down here at Denver Aquarium. And then one of my delights be, becomes delighting in their delight as a giant grouper swims by. But even more so than that, it is the understanding that God created that and gifted us with that very opportunity. Let's look at the first section. Go back to verse 1 again. Here is the motto in verse 2. All is vanity. He will say that throughout this entire book all the way through chapter 12. Our unfulfilled longings are a clear hint that we were made to enjoy something greater than stuff. All is vanity. Here is a survey of the scene and and. Just like typical wisdom literature, it begins with a question. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all? He uses that word. That, that little word is used more in this book. 
sort of within its volume more than any other book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And he's going to keep coming back to that phrase under the sun, all under the sun, all encompassing everything that you can observe and interact with. He does not answer the question that he posits in verse three here, but he will answer it four other times throughout this book. Here we are introduced to the phrase under the sun for the first time. It is used 29 times in this book and nowhere else in the Old Testament. So Ecclesiastes, in a unique way, is is allowing you to say, this is utter meaninglessness. All of it under the sun. The word all, which I already highlighted, is used in 41% of the verses in this book. Look at verse 4. This is where he launches right after he asks the question. So follow his logic. A generation goes and a generation comes. Okay, just don't keep reading. Just stop there. One group is newly born while another group is aging and on their way out. Within the last two weeks, we have had both a funeral and a baby shower for our members. And we observe this. And we will observe it again this year. And if the Lord tarries, we will observe it again in 2020 and 2021 with a generation going and a generation coming. That's how it seems. And if that's the end for everyone, then what is this life for? What is the meaning? It seems empty. Look at verse 5. And now he's going to choose uh, three things to sort of give you an idea of this cyclical pattern. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Do you realize that the sun that shines today is the same sun that provided light and warmth to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to Alexander the Great and to ruthless dictators and to child predators and to our great-great-grandparents who most of us don't even know their names? There is no remembrance of them. Matter of fact, the writer, the teacher is going to invite you and say, see, in four generations, in seven generations, no matter how great you are, they're not going to remember you. Because the sun goes up and the sun goes down. Look at verse six. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. This endless, sort of monotonous, cyclical life. Look at verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Can you just feel the vanity even of how he's writing? Sun, wind, rivers. This cyclic treadmill of life that seems empty. So it goes back to the question, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? By the way, if you just stop there, you're going to land in a very dangerous position. You're going to think, what's this life for? It's not worth anything, so why don't I just end it? And that is not where God, through the teacher, leads you. Look at verse 8. It doesn't get better, I'm warning you. 
This is going to keep getting emptier. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There's no lasting pleasure. The very thing you thought would satisfy you yesterday didn't. Apart from God, it didn't. Matter of fact, some of you were involved in the same things a decade ago and it still hasn't satisfied you. Your eye is still not satisfied. Verse 9, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. This is not a denial of technology and inventions. It is that all life patterns are cyclical. Everyone was born. Everyone dies. Almost nobody remembers it. I mean, can you remember? There's probably three of you who can. Can you even remember who the AFC champions were five years ago? Or the NFC champions five years ago? Some of you are assuming it's the Patriots. Okay? You don't even remember that. And we'll enjoy that. And there's a measure of joy in that today. But the fact is, you don't remember that. What has been done, what will be done, there is nothing new. It has already been in the ages before us. Can you feel the meaningless of that? You know that most Americans consider the office of the President of the United States of America to be the highest, most powerful, influential, secular office. But how many Americans can name 25 of the 45 men who have held that office? There are names that I could read to you of men that served as president and you'd be like, who is that? See, it doesn't matter. A generation goes, a generation comes. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So that's sort of this kind of the motto and a survey of the scene. Now he's going to sort of bring specific vanities forward and he's going to sort of level an argument um, by experience that, okay, we're going to look at this specific vanity. We're going to try to find our satisfaction in it. And I'm going to prove to you that at the end of the day, all is vanity. So here is a search for satisfaction and we'll begin with the limitations of human wisdom. It was already read for us. But look at verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, key phrase, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Verse 15, perhaps one of the more familiar verses in Ecclesiastes, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. What is actually happening here is that the solution for vanity is not found in this world. It is actually calling for the intervention of God to make this meaningful, to make this not empty. We need God to intervene in a specific way so that we find satisfaction and pleasure and joy. This is what's amazing about Ecclesiastes. Even though it's like on this like dull, sort of somber drumbeat, he's actually pointing you to pleasure and joy and satisfaction. So the limitations of human wisdom. And then look at chapter 2. This was not read for us, so we're going to take a little bit of time to read it. Here are the limitations of pleasure, accomplishment, possession, and human relationship. 
Verse 1, chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers. Here's music. Both men and women and many concubines. The delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10. Whatever, and this is, a, this is an all-encompassing statement. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all, in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and it's quite a list, and the toil that I, I had expended in doing it. And behold, what's his conclusion? All was what? Vanity. Emptiness. Meaninglessness. And a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And folks, we know this, don't we? When you get fixated on a relationship or on a thing or on a vehicle or on an achievement, how many people have worked years to achieve a specific degree and the very next day, they're empty about it. They're actually depressed. And again, God is not trying to spoil our enjoyment in this life. What He is trying to do is point us to the right and the true and the lasting pleasure that can be found under the sun. So here's His assessment. Look at verse 12. His assessment is this. Wisdom excels folly, but both the fool and the wise person die and leave everything behind. As a matter of fact, one of his greatest tensions in his heart is that everything he has worked for could actually be left to a fool who is going to squander it and not know how hard it was to achieve those things. Look at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Okay, so what? And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What event? Death. The wealthiest person in this gathering this morning will die. The poorest person in this assembly this morning will die. The most educated or the one with the highest emotional or educational intelligence will die. And the fool will die. This is what he's seeing under the sun. Then I said in my heart, verse 15, 
What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fools, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Now, just for sake of time, I want you to look at three phrases. Look at verse 17. So I hated life. Verse 18. I hated all my toil. And by the way, he keeps saying under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, all is vanity. Look at verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. And so what this book is doing is Ecclesiastes is meeting some of you right in the middle of your path. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? He returns at the end of this section to the very first question he asked. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. So how do we reconcile these statements? I hated life. I hated work. I gave my heart up to despair. Sleep is starting to evade me. Derek Kidner writes, and I love this this sentence. He disillusions us to bring us to reality. The whole disillusionment of life is on purpose to bring you to reality. That everything else in your search is going to dead end with meaninglessness unless you fear God and keep His commandments and live in such a way to know that He is going to bring every deed into an account There's a divine discontent that God gives to our heart. And it really is a hint of what we're going to see next week in chapter 3, verse 11, where it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Eternity is in man's heart, which means the temporal things. That's that word, vanity, wind, smoke, breath. It's not going to be able to satisfy your heart because God has created you in His image and made you for so much more than trinkets and circus toys. We don't get any better sight than a loving God whom He has made us in His image. We won't get out of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. So look at the conclusion of the first section. Look at verse 24. And this is where we're going to conclude this morning because this is how he wraps up this first section. This is how the author sums up his exploration. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, is that a sarcastic statement or is he really concluding with that? This is his advice. This is how he sums it up. This is, after his exploration, he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink. How mundane. And find enjoyment in his toil this also, and this is, the, this is the difference, this also is from the hand of who? God. Do you know it's God who allows you to enjoy your work? God allow you to, it's God who allows you to enjoy lunch. It's God who allows you to find pleasure in going out to a meal with friends. Do you know there's a point, though, where those things 
You may actually not find any enjoyment in them if you allow yourself to incrementally just move away from an awareness of God, from a reverence of who God is, from a relationship with Him. And all of a sudden, the very things that you used to find great delight in are boring. The real tension is not between toil and rest, but between meaninglessness and meaningful activity. The very toil that discouraged him and the rest that escaped him are now gifts of God. Now I have seen that even the eating and the drinking and the work are gifts from the hand of God. Look at verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, God wants you to have enjoyment. Do you believe that? He wants you to find delight and pleasure in Him. And when you find pleasure in Him, you will find pleasure in the mundane things of life. But you can't do it without Him. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Look at verse 26. Because the question is then, on what basis is a person given this enjoyment from God? Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases Him... God has given wisdom and knowledge and what? Joy. Are you joyless? Are you without joy? I don't mean giddiness or happiness. But that underwriting deep sense of joy. Well, the one who pleases Him, God has given Him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, this is the one who does not fear God at the end of the book. This is the one who does not keep His commandments. This is the one who says, "Ah, we won't be held accountable. Let's just do whatever we want to do. To the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Meaning, to give to the one whose treasure and joy is in another location. Turn to chapter 12 again, and I want you to look at his concluding statement and see how that aligns with his conclusion in chapter 2. (coughs) Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, and we've only gone through one of four sections. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fearing God, the one who knows Him, the believer, obeying His commandments, Jesus said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. Charles Darwin, who wrote On the Origin of Species, the one who said in publishing that theory of evolution was like confessing a murder, he wrote this, and And I want you to listen to his words. I have said that in one respect, my mind has changed during the last 20 or 30 years. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds, such as the works of Milton, Gray, Byron, Woodsworth, Coleridge, and Shelley gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare, especially in the historical plays. I have also said that formerly pictures gave me considerable and music very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. 
I have tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost my taste for pictures or music. Music generally sets me thinking too energetically on what I have been at work on instead of giving me pleasure. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. But why this should have caused the atrophy of the part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. We've only come through two chapters. And the teacher says, I've seen it's only God who can gift you with joy in eating and drinking and working. And you have someone like this, Charles Darwin, who abandoned his creator. And he loses the joy in things that he had formerly had great joy in. If you remove God from life, everything, all of it, is meaninglessness. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. That's an affectionate reverence for God that is liberating. It's freeing. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands. Those are the joyful ones. And it says, and keep His commands. There is joy in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God is sovereign and you can trust Him. He's not letting people get away with evil. He will call everyone to account. So fear Him and obey Him and trust Him. Praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands. The only way you will find meaning under the sun is by having a reverent, affectionate relationship with the One above the sun. We'll invite our worship team forward and we will sing a hymn of response. Psalm 1611 is a verse I would like us to put to memory. Sean and I were talking about memorizing a few verses together this year as a church. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is all about fullness of joy and pleasures. But not if you seek them apart from Him. Jesus said this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How can you have that abundant life? Jesus says in the next verse, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep.